If you would turn to Ezekiel 17. We're going to look at Ezekiel 17. <clears throat> Reading the whole chapter. Ezekiel 17, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took the top of the cedar. He broke off the topmost of its young twigs and carried it to a land of trade and set it in the city of merchants. Then he took the seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow tree, and it sprouted and became a low spreading vine, and its branches turned toward him, and its roots remained where it stood. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out boughs. And there's another great ink eagle with great wings and much plumage. And behold, this vine bent its roots toward him and shot forth its branches toward him from the bed where it was planted that he might water it. It had been planted on good soil by abundant waters that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine. Thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers so that all its fresh sprouting leaves wither. It will not take a strong arm or many people to pull it from its roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it, wither away on the bed where it sprouted? Then the word of the Lord came to me. Say now to the rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, Behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem, and he took her king and her princess and brought them to him, to Babylon. And he took one of the royal offspring and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath, the chief men of the land he had taken away, that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up and keep his covenant that it might stand. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him... Whoops, I just lost my place. My fingers are... You can tell I'm reading from a device. Uh, Verse 15, But he rebelled against by sending his ambassador to Egypt that they might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? As I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells who made him king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant with him he broke, in Babylon he shall die. Pharaoh, with his mighty army and great company, will not help him in war when mounds are cast up and siege walls built to cut off many lives. He despised the oath in breaking the covenant, and behold, he gave his hand and did all these things. He shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely it is my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke. 
I will return it upon his head. I will spread my net over him, and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him there for the treachery he has committed against me. And all the pick of his troops shall fall by the sword, and the survivors shall be scattered to every wind. And you shall know that I am the Lord, I have spoken. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree, dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying you'd open up our minds and our hearts to hear your word and to have a heart to obey and to, to follow you. Lord, we pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, before we get into this passage, I want to say I'm looking forward to tonight. I think the passage we're going to look on tonight, one of the seven sayings of the cross, I think this is the most important one, uh, Matthew 27, 46. I want to say thank Paul Sublet, too, for preparing my slides. I give him my text, and then he makes slides. So uh, we're going to look. Uh, we have the bulletin, an outline of the bulletin, and then you have uh, slides here. I just want to give you a quick outline of Ezekiel, a, a really simple one. One through three is a prophecy against Israel. We have his call in uh, one through four. Twelve through twenty-four is judgment on Israel. That's the section we're in, chapter seventeen. And then 25 through 32, Ezekiel talks about the nations around Israel. So up until 25, it's all against uh, God's people. And then 34 to 38, we finally get some hope. I mean, we, you saw it a little bit at the end of our chapter, but uh, the glory of God leaves in the early chapters of Ezekiel, and then the glory comes back in uh, 34 through 38. So I want to also show you a map. I have a little pointer here that can help us. So uh, this is the, uh, the map, and you can see they start out here, and they're going to go to Babylon. When we were looking at Ezra, Ezra was starting in this area, and he went back, and it took him four months. So you can imagine there's about 10,000 people coming from here, and they're traveling up here, and they're not in the major city. They're in a place where there's a uh, canal. And Ezekiel is staying in uh, Babylon. And Jeremiah, who's, is, well, he's a little bit older, but he's contemporary. He's staying in uh, here, and then he actually goes over to Egypt. Uh, so this is the time period, uh, five 87 or so, and this is called the Babylonian exile. If you've heard that term before, that's when the people of God are moved out of Israel into Babylon. They're in a foreign place, 
Uh, you had another one. The Assyrian exile is in 722. We talk about the lost, the ten lost tribes. They're really scattered. We, we lose them. And then this one, they're in Babylon, and then they come back with Ezra and uh, Nehemiah. Now in our chapter, I just want to give you, you probably noticed when we were reading it, 1 through 10 is the riddle or the parable. It's called both. Uh, Ezekiel at the end of chapter 20 is called a maker of parables. And I think it's a slam, like he just talks. We don't really pay attention to him. And then 11 through 21 is the explanation from God. Hopefully that will clarify things. And then 22 through 24, it's this, this hope. But it's the, the hope is put in the form of a tree. So you have to follow this uh, analogy of a tree. Uh, so I want to go through this first part. And when you read a chapter like this, initially it may sound kind of uh, difficult to understand. But I think as we go through it, it'll make, it'll make more sense and you'll, you'll see it. So the, the captivity is not just like one month and they're all moved. There's, there's different phases. This, par- this parable was said just before the, uh, Nebuchadnezzar came. And we're going to see why Nebuchadnezzar came and uh, Zedekiah is a, is a big reason for that. So let's try to identify the eagles and the vine. So if you look at verse 3, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is this great eagle with great wings. He has great wings, long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, and he's going to be contrasted with the second eagle. The second eagle doesn't do anything. That's going to represent Egypt. All right? But now we have this great king in uh, verse 3, and in verse 4, what he's saying there is that Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiachin to Babylon. And he's really the legitimate, he's the last legitimate king of Israel. And so the exiles see Jehoiachin, who's in Babylon, as the legitimate king. Zedekiah is more, more of a puppet. So uh, the parable moves Jehoiachin there, and now we focus on uh, Zedekiah. So if you look at verse 5, it says that this great uh, eagle, described um, much more glorious than the second eagle, he took a seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil. And this is uh, Zedekiah. And what we're reading here is he's, take, he's taking care, this eagle is taking care to plant it just where it'll grow. He needs just the right water, just the right sun, and the eagle is making sure that this is a great place for uh, this vine to grow. So there's ample water in verse 5, and then in verse 6, it actually uh, sprouts, it begins to grow, and it becomes a low-spreading vine, and its uh, branches are turned toward him. So it means that the branches are turned toward Babylon, toward Nebuchadnezzar. So let me stop and say that uh, if you were a king in Israel at this time, you have to pay money to Babylon. Babylon pretty much owns this area. 
So Zedekiah thought, well, I don't really like this. I'm, I have to pay enormous taxes to Nebuchadnezzar, and I'm not sure how strong he is. And so this other pharaoh, he's not named here, but it's uh, another pharaoh, Hapra. He's, he reigns by himself for 20 years, and then he reigns uh, for longer than that with, with his son. And he is described in verse 7, and you can see that Zedekiah is attracted to Egypt. So let's look at verse 7. There was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage. Now, that's all that's described about this eagle. This eagle doesn't do anything. It is an eagle. It has plumage, but it's not as glorious as the first eagle. So at this time, what this means is in Israel, the two uh, powers, well, the, the dominant power was Babylon. Then the two other powers is um, Egypt and Philistia. So these are the two powers. And Zedekiah is looking over at Egypt and says, I think it's going to be better for us if I try to tie my uh, fortune to Egypt. So uh, now if you look at um, verse 7, I meant to say that the vine is... um, Sure, I have this right. Yes. In verse 7, the vine is saying, even though I'm planted by Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to go toward Egypt. And it's been, verse 8, planted on good soil that it might produce fruit. And then it changes to go to this other uh, eagle, which is Egypt. So verse 9, God says, now do you think that that vine will survive? It's a rhetorical question. It's not going to survive. Verse 9 says, Will he not pull it up? Will he not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all its fresh sprouting leaves wither? It will not take a strong arm or many people to pull it from its roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it? So the east wind is a desert hot wind and God is saying uh, it's not going to survive. Now, I don't think that if we were expressing some biblical truth, we would come up with this analogy or parable. Uh, When I first read it, I thought, this is not easy to understand, right? You you wouldn't use it. But it's, it's a riddle or a parable is what it said in the first verse. And it could be that one of the reasons that Ezekiel is using this is because when Ezekiel talks, God's people are putting their hands over their ears. They do not want to hear him. They've had it with Ezekiel. And so he is, he is acting out things. He's giving them parables and riddles. And, and a lot of times they look at him and say, what is that? What's that about? So it may be a way for Ezekiel to grab his listeners so they'll ask. So that's 1 through 10. That's the description of the, uh, of the parable. And if, if you're listening, if you're contemporary, you really don't know that this is going to happen in a short time. But actually, this is 
this is going to happen in a very short time. We're told about this, uh, that Zedekiah is going to be severely punished for this. And you, you can read about this in 2 Kings 24, 2 Chronicles 36, and Jeremiah 39 and 52. In fact, let's look at uh, 2 Chronicles 36. He did what was evil, that is Zedekiah, in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. Wait a minute. He's hearing the same thing from Jeremiah. Ezekiel is saying one thing in Babylon. Jeremiah is saying the same in Israel. It's like stereo. They're getting the same word. Back to Second Chronicles 13. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. So verse 13 says that Zedekiah made a covenant with Jeremiah in the name of God. And he could have submitted to Nebuchadnezzar. He could have gone to Egypt. I mean, another possibility is submitting to God. But that was out. Zedekiah was not going to do that. The Jews were not. God was the last resource. In fact, he wasn't even an option to them. So what happened is he went into exile. So you can say what went wrong. And if you read this chapter, you will see that, that the Ezekiel keeps saying he made a vow and he broke it. He broke his covenant. In other words, Zedekiah made a promise to Nebuchadnezzar. And there's one verse in here that God says, he broke my covenant. So Nebuchadnezzar should have submitted to, sorry, Zedekiah should have submitted to Nebuchadnezzar. Now you have to understand the quandary that that presents to God's people. Both Ezekiel and Jeremiah said, we're going to have a foreign nation come and remove you from the land. And you know what you should do? You should submit to them. Jeremiah said, you should go over in Babylon and live and do business. You should buy property. You should invest in your business. You should hire people. You're going to be there for a while. And so on one hand, Zedekiah made this vow and he broke it. But on the other hand, which the nation of Israel really had a difficult time understanding, is God is using Babylon to punish them. God is using this foreign nation to come on their land and remove them from the land. Look at uh, Jeremiah 25, 9. Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all those surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Nebuchadnezzar probably isn't praying each morning saying, how can I serve God today? God, just help me to love you and to destroy your people. But God is using Nebuchadnezzar 
because these pe- his people have sinned against him. So what should Zedekiah have done? Well, he should have kept his covenant. He should have kept uh, what he said he was going to do, and he should submit it to God. Listen again to Jeremiah. But if any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with a sword, with famine, with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I, until I have consumed it by his hand. You really need to think about that. So the people of God are in Israel, and God is using this foreign uh, king and nation. And God says, I want you to submit to them because they're doing what I want to do. I want to punish you. This is my wrath. I'm using these people, but this is my wrath. You need to submit to that. Uh, Ezekiel 17, our chapter 19 through 20, this is where uh, God says the covenant that Zedekiah made is my covenant. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely it is my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke for the treachery he has committed against me. So it's not as if Zedekiah is just rebelling against Babylon. As Zedekiah rebels against Babylon, Zedekiah is actually rebelling against God who brought the Babylonian army. And God takes an affront at that. Verse 14, he wants to humble the nation of Israel. And you might say, well, wait a minute. How would... How would Zedekiah know that he was supposed to submit to Babylon? I mean, actually, this goes against what you would do as a king. You would, you'd want to protect your nation. Well, he could listen to Jeremiah, who's in Israel. But that is God speaking. He didn't want to listen to God. But he had plenty of opportunity to do the right thing. Okay, so we've looked at kind of identifying the eagle and the vine, what went wrong. Now what about us? Well, there's a lot about God's wrath in this book and in this chapter. And really, the teaching and preaching of God's wrath is indispensable for the church. It is vitally important to talk about this. I'm sure you've heard this quote before. Man, I have quoted this so many times. Richard Niebuhr, in 1959, 1959, 63 years ago, said this, A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That's Protestant liberalism right there. And that's kind of what you have in our country. I don't think we know the influence that Norman Vincent Peale's book, The Power of Positive Thinking, back in the 50s. But, but our culture is a clappy, happy culture. You know, we, we want to be happy at any expense. And I want to talk about that for a bit, because that's what this chapter is about. Why is 
the preaching and teaching of God's wrath important, indispensable? One, because it's true. It's in the Bible all over. You, you cannot read the Bible without coming face to face with God's wrath. So we talk about it. But it's true. Now I'll say this about God's wrath. God's love and God's holiness stand by itself. If there's no sin, you wouldn't have God's wrath. But His wrath is an expression, it comes out of His holiness. So His holiness will, will always be there, His love will always be there, justice, etc. But His wrath is only because there's sin. And that's the world we live in. So in Nahum 1.3, the Lord is slow to anger, we'll come back to that, great in power, the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. You will see God's wrath poured out. You may not see it in your lifetime here, but if you don't believe this morning, you will face God's wrath. If you're just kind of going along with this, but, but you're, you don't believe it in here, you will know what I'm talking about. Jeremiah 30, I will discipline you, but only with justice. I will not let you go entirely unpunished. I think it's important because it's true, and then it refocuses God's holiness and justice. If you have trouble with God's wrath, I would say this. You want God's wrath. You want Him to be just. So let's say at work that there was about six of us, and uh, I, I didn't do my work. I just did whatever I wanted. I slept. I came in drunk. I used drugs. I treated customers bad. And the five of you had to do more work and had to deal with more problems because of me. What do you want your manager or boss to do? Fire me and get me out of there. That you could do better with five people that work together than five and one of a person who's drunk and whatever. I didn't describe myself though, but just so you know. You want God's wrath. You want someone finally to say, this will not continue. In fact, you yearn for it. You're all, everything in you yearns and demands it. One person said, the wisdom of God devised a way for the love of God to deliver sinners from the wrath of God while not compromising the righteousness of God. So it's important uh, because it's true. It's important because it refocuses God's holiness. And you need to know God's holiness. It's also the backdrop of the grace of God. I'm sure you've heard this analogy before, but you can look at a diamond and somebody holds it up and it looks beautiful. But you put something black behind it and shine light on that diamond and it just, just comes alive. And so when we talk about the grace of God, the backdrop is the wrath of God. <clears throat> God's wrath is essential because His anger is against sin, which is an expression of His holiness and justice. He will always, has always, and will always be angry about sin. It demands his response. 
He doesn't just blow sin off. You and I, to be honest, we like sin. We hold on to it. We have it in our heart. We hide it from others. We say, yeah, I know we should get rid of it. I'm going to keep it here. I'm just going to keep it in my pocket. I'll pull it out when I need it. You love sin. I love sin. Not God. He despises sin. He hates sin. And he tells it in his word over and over again. I might ask you this. What are we saved from? We are saved by God, for God, from God. You are saved from God's wrath. If you do not know God, you will experience his wrath. So you probably know the person of Jonathan Edwards. He uh, was well-known, and he traveled to Enfield, Connecticut. In this month, month of July, uh, 1741, and this is the this is the uh, sermon that kids read in their literature class, and they mock and make fun of. Um, it's called "Sinners of the Hands of an Angry God." But let me just read a little bit of this uh, for you, and this is just one section. And I, and I, re- I use this because maybe they didn't talk like Jonathan Edwards. But this, when you went to church, you heard these things. And there was an effect on you that you feared God. You, you looked at sin differently. And that's why I said it is indispensable that we talk about the wrath of God. Here's the middle of his sermon. The wrath of God is like great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. In other words, you haven't seen God's wrath yet. The flood The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing, and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty, and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open. And the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutiest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. There's a time when churches like this maybe didn't hear that exact sermon. They heard about the wrath of God. Don't you feel differently just after a paragraph of that? It's indispensable to talk about. God's wrath is multifaceted. There's so many aspects to it. Now, one of the reasons people don't like to hear this is is God is so intolerant. And uh, we're going to put, C.S. Lewis wrote a, a 
essay called God in the Dock. That is, God is guilty, and the dock is where the guilty person sat in the courtroom. 21st century has God in the dock, saying, you're intolerant. We don't want to hear you. God's wrath does not nicely work itself into polite conversations, but he has a thousand, a million reasons for his wrath. It's good for God's people. It's good for the ungodly. God's wrath disciplines us. It corrects us. You know, sometimes it punishes us. It's who God is. In Ezekiel 7, My eye will not spare you, nor will I pity Or in seven, now the end is upon you, and I will send my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways. Now that is a very significant phrase. This is repeated in Ezekiel over and over. I will judge you according to your ways, which is saying one thing we know about the uh, justice of God, the wrath of God, is it's absolutely just. No one will ever say, that's not fair. I mean, our justice system, we have all kinds of examples of injustice. Not with God. And my my eye will not spare you. Just think of that. A moment when God will not have pity on you. If you are an unbeliever, there will be a moment when he will have no pity on you. I'll tell you, I have done a number of sermons over the years. What this country believes in is not justification by grace alone. It's justification by death. Everybody that dies, they all think they're going to heaven. Very few have them some questions. Verse 9 of uh, Chapter 7, my eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity. I will punish you while your abominations are in your midst, and then you will know that I am the Lord. So listen to this quote about the slowness of God's wrath. The Lord waits so long in his graciousness that people think he cannot judge. But when he does come in judgment, it is so decisive that it seems as if he cannot show mercy. For this is not the sudden anger of an irritable temper, easily inflamed, but equally easily pacified. This is deliberate measure wrath, following a full investigation of the facts. There will be no last-minute appeals or reprises. For there is no higher court to whom appeal can be made, and no pertinent facts have been overlooked in reaching the verdict. So it was with Sodom and Gomorrah, and so shall it be at the end of history or at the end of your life. Because every single human being in the world will stand before this holy God. And maybe you have been right when you said to a teacher, I should have got that right. Those of you who teach and you give a test results back, they're all complaining. Some of them work you before the test. Not this one. He even says in 722, I'll turn my face for them, they shall 
profane my treasured place. Robbers shall enter it and profane it. He is saying that you have profaned my sanctuary so badly that now it's not even a sanctuary I want to protect. I'm going to have others come in and profane it. That's what you've done. There's coming a time when he will say to an unbeliever, I will turn my face from you. What a terrible day that will be. I don't know if this will happen, but I do imagine that there will be people that say, wait a minute, wait, wait. I went to church, or I was a minister. You know me. Or they will say, well, I did this and I did that. Just think, if you ever hear these words, depart from me, I never knew you. You don't want to be that person because if what the Bible says about the wrath of God is true, there's no escape. There is no escape. You could come out of a car wreck and you can look at a car and you think, how could anybody live? Sometimes they do. And maybe you've had near misses in, in a vehicle or something, and you're here. And you say, yeah, okay. Not this. There's no getting away. You will meet him. Eric Alexander said, the real horror of being outside of Christ is that there is no shelter from the wrath of God. But God's wrath is certain. When Ezekiel saw this vision of God in chapter 1, 1 through 3 is his call. I don't think he ever got over it. And so the people that he preached to, they, they never listened to him. They never did anything. That he just, and it's, I was thinking of the way they were so utterly convinced that he was wrong, and I'll, we'll get into that in a second. But it's like in Acts 7. Remember when Stephen was preaching, and he, he went through this whole story about how they've been rebellious all this time. And at the end of chapter 7, they were so mad they ground their teeth. It's like an animal. They were in such anger. And they cried out, and they, they stopped their ears. They, they put their fingers in their ears. I don't want to hear this anymore. And they rushed upon him and killed him. You know, we talk about cancel culture. This goes back a long way. You know what the life verse of the listeners of Ezekiel was? Jeremiah 5, 12 through 13. He, that is God, will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. The word is not in them, the prophets. In other words, Jeremiah, we hear you. Ezekiel, we hear you. It's just not going to happen to us. So go ahead and talk. We don't care. We're not listening. And they did talk. I'll tell you the verses that they held on to. And there are verses that, that you could use to support their side. Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You could put that in your house and say, that's it, that's my verse. 
Period. Nothing else. Or Deuteronomy 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold on to that. And it's true. But this is what they forgot. Genesis, uh, sorry, Deuteronomy 6. For the Lord your God is in your midst, is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. This is, is so close to happening in chapter 17. Deuteronomy 28. The Lord will bring a nation. This is, remember, this is Deuteronomy. This is hundreds of years before this happened. Moses is saying this in Deuteronomy. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle. Or there's the eagle. A nation whose language you do not understand. Ezekiel 20. I swore to them in the wilderness that he would scatter them. That's kind of heavy. But it's true. And... We have to talk like this because it's in the Bible so often. It's, it's not a minor theme. It's not as if Ezekiel is the only one who talks like this. And, and I would want to say, if you don't know Christ, you should be shaking. This is a reason to be afraid. When you go to a scary movie, I don't go to scary movies, but I think the people that go, they want to be scared, but then they walk out and they're, you know, they're not scared. You should walk out and be more scared. Because your baptism will not save you if you don't know Christ. Your title, maybe you're an elder, a deacon, a church member, whatever. That's not it. It's, that's never been it. And we, we don't say that it is. But if you don't know Christ and you're young, you better be careful because your heart is already getting hard. And if you don't know Christ when you're old, I'm just warning you. I, don't, I can't read your mind or your heart. So here's the hope. Because this chapter ends in 22 through 24 with hope. In Ezekiel 17:22, thus says the Lord, I myself. And then he talks about taking this twig, planting it up in the mountains, and it'll be just glorious. So I want to go away from the tree imagery that Ezekiel's using and talk about something else. Internal. This is Ezekiel 11. And when they come here, they will, and when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I, God, will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. That last verse, that is the heart of the covenant. And how he does that, he goes inside you and changes you. When we were reading those, uh, sorry, singing those two songs, 
for me, when I sing that, I think if you're in the world and you, you would never understand people singing words like that, that all I want is Christ. You cannot sing that and mean that unless God has changed your heart. You know, just because you're in a church it doesn't mean anything. I mean, a mouse can get in a cookie jar. It doesn't mean he's a cookie. So if you really mean that, that meant Christ has changed you. If you look around and you look at people singing and you think, I don't feel that, that's because you don't know Christ. And you're in deep trouble. And, and those of you who are younger, you need to know that a lar- this is sad, a large percentage of people who grew up in evangelical homes, Bible-believing churches, don't believe anymore. I know you adults know what I'm saying. It is a deep sadness. If you're younger, you don't want to be that person because they turn on God with a vengeance. I mean a vengeance. Some of you may be there some of you may be close. It's, a, it's an awful place to be. Because do you think, do you think God will have any compassion for a p- person who grew up in a church, who heard about the gospel, and then when they got wise and smart, they turned their back? This is what you're reading in this chapter. They knew all the stories, and they didn't listen anymore, and God cast them away. And many of them died. But that's not what he wants. He wants to make, in Ezekiel 37, a covenant of peace with you. It shall be an everlasting covenant with you. And I'll set them in their land and multiply them and set my sanctuary in their midst. He wants us to come together and worship. He doesn't want to judge. This is why Jesus began his ministry according to Mark saying, the time is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. It is a strange thing to me that to become a Christian, all you have to do is admit you aren't one. That's what repenting is, saying, I'm not. I am not a Christian. I don't believe, I don't love, but, but now I want to. That's what repenting is, changing your mind. That's what the word literally means. And placing your faith in Christ. This is, this is a tough chapter. Uh, it's not as easy to understand. It's not as easy to, to read. I don't think you'll go back to this a year from now and say, boy, well, that's my chapter. I love that chapter. But it is the truth. And I hope you take it as such. I hope you look beyond the, the story about a tree and a vine and eagle and look what God is trying to say. But he ends it with hope, and that's how I want to end. There is hope for any person who believes in Christ. And if you believe in Christ, it is because he changed your heart to believe. So if you're there at that point, it's because he already changed your heart. But it is so important that you do that. You yourself, not hold on to your parents' uh, coattails or you have a grandpa or a, a, a friend in your family, but you know Christ. 
And so next time we sing those songs, you can say, all I want is Christ. For you to say that, for you to really mean that no matter what age, you only have that because God, through his Holy Spirit, changed your inside, your soul. It is the most glorious thing you could ever experience. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for your love to us. And I pray that you would help us to to have a heart to serve you. Uh, These stories in Ezekiel are, in a sense, unusual. And yet they are from your word and, and for us to ponder. Thank you for the creativity we find in your word to, to bring these stories uh, to us. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would not bring comfort to those who do not believe, but would actually bring comfort to anyone who's soft-hearted. Lord, I pray that you would bless us, and I pray that you would uh, be honored. 